Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grunwald. This week, I am joined by my special guest co-host, Kieran Handa Godioso, CEO of the United Way of Northern New Jersey. Together, we interview Dan Treglia, Associate Professor of Practice at the University of Pennsylvania, Associate Faculty Director of Penn's Partnership for Effective Public Administration and Leadership Ethics, and a Senior Research Fellow at United for Alice. For those who may not know, ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. Dan grew up in Staten Island, New York. His parents were both teachers, and he shares that their roles shaped his trajectory. They were fearsome advocates for non-traditional and immigrant students that had some tougher challenges. Dan has dedicated his career to focusing on social policy problems through collaborative and innovative research that engages governments, nonprofits, and people with lived experience and training students to do the same. His research documents the scope and consequences of income and housing instability and homelessness, and he uses big data and qualitative methods to better understand the macro and micro level of complex problems and help governments and nonprofits take action. During the interview, Dan gives a word of encouragement to those who may not know where they are headed, as he has always felt it was a gift that he found his path. Dan gives an example of the research he recently has been focused on around children who lost a parent or caregiver due to COVID-19. The research report shows that 167,000 children in the United States were personally affected. Listen in to hear more about the report and what is being done to support these children because of this research. Through his policy work, Dan wants to help break down structural disadvantages and make sure that everyone is heard. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Today's the Day Changemakers YouTube channel, stream this podcast on all streaming sites, comment, like, and share, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Today is the Day Live It. The views expressed by all Today's the Day Changemakers podcast guests are their own. Their appearance on the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. Have a great week, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I'm Jody Grinwald, and every week I get to interview the most incredible humans who walk the earth, who are changemakers, inspirers, are just breaking down the status quo. And I am really excited because I get to have Kieran Honda Godioso back with me today as a co-host instead of someone I'm interviewing. Hey, Kieran, how are you? Good morning. How are you, Jody? Thanks so much for having me back. I can't wait to have this conversation with Dan and you today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I, I so enjoyed our conversation and getting to know you over time since then. So thank you for everything that you've done for Changemakers as well. Awesome. So Dan Treglia, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, but I'm not going to do a dance like Karen. No dancing? <laughs> Darn. Darn. I should have played music. You know, I play music when I do my NJBIA uh, nonprofit council meetings every month. I should play music when I first come on and get everybody dancing in their chairs. That's a whole other podcast. We'll have to do that next time. But Dan, I'm going to read. The only time I read, I'm going to read from your bio here. We're going to tell everybody a little bit more about who you are. But before I do that, Karen Honda Godioso is the president and CEO of United Way of Northern New Jersey and president of United for Alice, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So um, for now, though, we're going to get back to Dan and I'm going to read his bio. Dan is an associate professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania. 
Associate Faculty Director of Penn's Partnership for Effective Public Administration and Leadership Ethics, and a Senior Research Fellow at United for Alice. He has dedicated his career to seemingly intractable social policy problems through collaborative and innovative research that engages governments, nonprofits, and people with lived experience in training students to do the same. His research documents the scope and consequences of income and housing instability and homelessness, and he uses big data and qualitative methods to better understand the macro and micro level, to understand complex problems and help governments and nonprofits take action. He has a PhD in social welfare from Penn School of Social Policy and Practice and a master's in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. So Jan, how did it feel to hear all of that that you have done? I'm in awe of myself. No. <laughs> you should be. You should be. Oh my goodness. I, some of the words I had to skip, I couldn't, I wouldn't even know how to spell them if you said them to me. That, that really incredible background. And I'm just so glad to have you here. I, I very much appreciate that. No problem. So what I do is Kira knows is we always go back and we talk about the human before they got to all those words on the page. So let's start with talking a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Staten Island, New York. Um, well, often, often termed the forgotten borough. Um, and um, I'm one of two, I have a younger brother and both of my parents are or were teachers. Um, and that shaped a lot of, I think, how I think about the world and kind of my career trajectory um, ever since then. My dad taught at the uh, uh, College of Technology, part of the CUNY schools or the city university schools. My mom was a third grade teacher um, and both working with kind of oftentimes either non-traditional or immigrant students um, who had kind of tough challenges um, that you wouldn't see um, kind of in some of the kind of upper income communities around Staten Island or other parts of the, of the city. Um, and they were just kind of fearsome advocates um, for those students and their families. And I think that helped to shape kind of what I do and how I think. Dan, I didn't know we had that in common. I was a Staten Islander myself. I, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. What, what area did you grow up in? Do you know where Clove Lakes Park is? Of course. Okay. I grew up across the street from Clove Lakes Park. Wow. So awesome. It's a great park. It's a great park. I was Heartland Village, so I was by the mall, which was not very far from the dump, unfortunately. Yes, I know, which is now, which is now closed down. Um, no, it was it was wonderful, right? And when people think of New York City, Staten Island is the farthest thing from their mind. It's, it's very suburban. You know, we had a you know single fam unattached single family house with with a yard, um, which is not kind of this the typical of New York City, and certainly not what's depicted in TV shows and, and movies. Um, and we were across the street from a, a, a large park, and that's where I grew up, running and playing baseball with my dad, and you know the zoo is down the street and all that good stuff. Um, it was a, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I guess as a kid, you can't wait to get out of kind of wherever you came from. Um, and so as soon as I could, you know, jump ship and go to Philadelphia for college, I did. Um, but I look back on, on those memories, especially now that I have kids and think, wow, what a, what a lucky child that I had. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Now, because you're so data driven, we're, I, I'm just curious, were you more of a shy child as a kid or more outgoing? I was a very shy child. I was, a, I, I have, I've been told I'm outgoing now, but that's not my natural state of being. I was a very shy child. And I remember being in family gatherings and being of gathering at gatherings with other 
kids and, and being, you know, the, the shy, quiet one. Um, it wasn't until quite, quite a bit later on that I came out of that shell a little bit. I understand that completely. That was me growing up as well. It's like, please don't call on me. Please don't even see me in the classroom. I don't want I don't want to be called on. Karen, what about yourself? Were you were were you that as well? More on the on the shyer side? No. <laughs> <laughs> you were the outgoing one of our group here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was definitely the kid that was, you know, getting the tap on the shoulder in school, to, you know, that kind of stuff very chatty, very friendly, always wanting to know what everybody else was, was doing. I've become more shy as I've gotten older, actually. Yeah. We're, we're going in opposite directions. At some point we're going to cross and exactly. there'll be someone tapping my shoulder. You'll be tapping my shoulder. Going, yeah. 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 That's yeah. good though. The evolution of, of our, of who we are. I think that's, that's interesting. But you also wonder, right? So we're getting outgoing, especially because of the work you're doing, right? So it's important to be more outgoing, I feel like, to share all that you're learning. But also, like, Karen, you're saying you're getting shyer, which is also harder when you're older because you know that most people want you to network and be more outgoing. So it could be even more difficult to be shyer as an adult, I think. Although when we're kids, it just always feels awkward. When We always just feel awkward. I just always felt awkward as a child in those situations. I still feel awkward. I'm nearly 40 and I still feel awkward in many situations. Um, but I was this, you know, the shy, nerdy, kind of pimply phase kid. And it wasn't until I got to high school and kind of started running and became good at a thing that I developed any confidence at all. Um, and, and that's where I kind of started to kind of understand a little bit more about who I was and, and come out of that shell a little bit. What was that thing that you were good at back then? Uh, I, I want to say that I am a runner but that's stretching the current. Um, I certainly was a runner, um, got into it so I could play hockey and be a better hockey player, you know, develop some stamina and develop some speed. And then it turned out that I was a better runner than I was a hockey player. And so I just kept doing that. Um, and at some point I had to make a choice as I was getting near college. Um, and my opportunities being five, five and, and change and 140 pounds or whatever it was, hockey wasn't going to be my future. Um, but I had a, a much better shot at, at running. And so that's what I did through high school. Um, and then what I did through parts of college. Karen was shaking her head when you said about running. So you know about his running career? Yes. And he is a runner. He's, he ran D1 runner college. He's a runner. You're a runner. Thank, thank you. For thank sure. You. <laughs> Absolutely. He and I have a lot of conversation about it and all that training and the need to run and running in the pandemic and injuries. And the injuries. Yeah. Injuries. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is no fun. The injury part, right? You try to stay healthy and then you get injured. That is, that is the bad part. It's, it's about, and I think Karen and I both have this drive. It's about walking that line. That's really a, a tightrope between mm -hmm. excelling and pushing as far as your body's willing to go um, without going too far. But inevitably in the search for that line, you only discover where that line is by crossing it. And then as you get older, you become a little bit wiser, but your body also changes and is less forgiving of, of all those miles or, of, or all of those twists. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we adapt and we learn. And so I've, you know, integrated biking and strength training and um, now Pilates into my, uh, I know, um, I'm, I'm hurting uh, into my routines. Um, with some running just as a way of, of staying in shape and, and feeling healthy. 
strong. That's all. That's wonderful. And yeah, I would love to do Pilates. I, I Kieran and I are kind of, I think, same generation. We're, we're in that same club. Our ages are the same. So yeah, we do, I definitely know my line is changing of what, what I can do and what I can't do and I don't like it. So got to keep pushing though. That's, that's for sure. Dan, career-wise, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> At what point in my life? Um, there was a... Um, I remember going into college, you know, leaving high school, going into college, when I began to kind of first have serious conversations and serious thoughts about what that was, what that trajectory was going to be. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something in the public sphere. In high school, I was, you know, in the AP government and politics class, um, you know, spent a lot of my time debating fellow students and wanted to do something in the political realm. But I didn't know what that was going to be. Um, but I also knew that I, and again, this came a lot from my, from my parents, that I had some obligation to make the world a, you know, a better place for the most vulnerable communities. And I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to look like. Um, and then spent the first couple of years of college thinking about kind of just wandering, wandering through a pen experience, um, you know, taking a political science course here and there, taking an urban studies course, um, getting electives out of the way or getting requirements out of the way. Um, and unsure of what I wanted to do. Um, and I remember this summer between sophomore and junior years of, of college, having a, a tough conversation with my dad, or really my dad having a tough conversation with me, but kind of, what are you doing here, right? Spent two years at Ed Penn, um, and you've been taking these classes, that's great, but you gotta figure out what you want, what you wanna do. Um, and, Luckily, that spring, um, spring of my junior year, I took a class, I think it was called Religion and Social Welfare. And that class, especially kind of the social welfare aspect of it, and the transference of kind of funding and programming from federal governments through the states to nonprofits that were actually administering the programs and the evaluation of those programs um, really appealed to me. Um, and suddenly this was kind of the mechanics of how social services were being administered along with the politics that dictated the terms and conditions of that assistance. Uh, we were reading evaluations, some were good and some were bad. And I was thinking even as a college junior, hmm, I think with a little bit of training, I can do better than this. Um, and that has shaped the rest of my career. So that summer, um, with the help of that professor, I did an internship at the Brookings Institution. Um, and then, you know, continued that work through my senior year, did an independent study, focused on, on welfare to work programs in Philadelphia, um, and then got a, a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School, and have kept kind of along that trajectory, really kind of once I found some direction, my path has been incredibly linear, um, right? From, hmm, I want to do something in the social policy realm, but that's at a kind of macro or policy level. Um, so I can think big picture. I don't want to do it from a, from a quantitative perspective and a data-driven perspective. Um, every aspect of my career, every one of the jobs that I've taken on since then um, has fallen very clearly within that, within that world. What, what does that give to you? What is the gift from all of that to you? 
what is the gift of all of it for me? Um, I do love the positivity of your of of, the, of, of your interviews and the, the framing of your questions. Um, I think there is a gift in clarity, um, and that I know what I want to do. And it took me quite a while to to figure that out. And there is just some gift that I can wake up every day knowing this is my career. Um, and many people are just simply not lucky enough to have a career. Um, either they're switching careers or they have kind of jobs without a kind of particular direction. And I'm very lucky to have kind of a singular and guiding trajectory uh, through my career. Um, and I feel extraordinarily blessed and, and gifted to be able to kind of provide, you know, indirectly for members of my community that have had a, a tough go of it, right? All of my work, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this in due course, all of my work um, has focused on kind of creating or shaping or evaluating programs that um, are geared to aiding people that are having a rough go of things, either people that are kind of, um, having substance abuse or, or mental health concerns or have lost their housing, um, do you have economic concerns or, or anything else. Um, that's, I think, very, that, that's a gift. Um, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I can do that. Um, and to have a mindset that that kind of puts it, that goes in, in that direction as, as well. So if, you know, and, and what you said is so important, those are the things that you're doing to help those who are in that population. So I always like to share messages with those who may be listening that are in the populations that we're talking about. And you had, it sounds like family who supported and pushed you to, to go after the things that you wanted in your life, right? Or that you were hoping to reach, you know, as Absolutely. that, yes. have that, having that tough conversation, but not everybody has that. So if you were to be that person today for the, somebody who's listening out there, what advice do you have? For someone kind of in my position back then thinking- um, For someone well, who doesn't have your, your dad and your, and your mom to push you, if you were to give a message to someone who needs that push that's listening right now, that doesn't know where they're going, but they know they want to make a difference and they don't even know where to start. What would you say to them? Yeah, uh, a couple things. First, I would say um, that this is a normal process. Not knowing who you are and wh what you're going to do in five or 10 years down the line is a normal process. And it is, it causes right existential crisis um, because you're trying to shape your life and you don't know really who you are at 18 years old or 20 years old or even 25 years old. Um, and so be kind to yourself, be patient with yourself um, because it's not easy to be in that position. And don't try to take it on by yourself. Seek out people that are willing to serve as guides and willing to serve as mentors. They exist, they're out there um, and they want to help. Many people go through college without speaking to their professors outside of a, a lecture hall. And let me tell you, that's what I enjoy about my work. I mean, sure, it's okay to stand in front of a lecture hall and teach statistics for three hours. But what I really love are the one-on-one -on -one conversations and opportunities where I can be a mentor and guide someone. Because I was very lucky to receive that when I was a student and through my early adulthood um, and, and still now. Um, and I want to make sure that others feel the same way. And so many students um, feel shy about it. They don't want to intrude or they don't feel qualified to introduce themselves to their professors. Well, there's no qualification. You're here 
good. Just come to office hours. We're there. We want to talk to you. It's why, it's why we're doing this kind of work. And then there are those who are in the middle of their career and they're afraid to make a turn because, you know, I've done this, I've stayed there for a long time or, you know, they, and I just spoke to someone who lit who started out living in Jamaica, became a teacher there. But when she moved to Canada, she couldn't be a teacher. So she had to go work in a factory. She had to work her way back up to being a teacher. And, and so it was a very interesting story. So I share this also is that for those who want to change direction and, and not, are not sure how to do that. Do you have anything with your background? Do you have anything to share with them? So I've been very lucky personally in that my career has been, and I mentioned this before, very linear, um, right? I've been very fortunate to get into this trajectory and to, and to stay there, but you know, to anyone and whether it's in, whether it's a, a young adult, someone in college or someone mid career, um, again, don't feel kind of shame in thinking in trying to kind of figure this out because life is not a desk. No part of life is a destination. You're never there. Um, you're always trying to better understand yourself and achieve your own goals. So understand kind of your own blessings, um, your own gifts, um, and don't try to do it all on your own. Find those people that are where you want to be and talk to them. Don't say no to yourself. Don't negotiate the other side. It's something that I've been very guilty of doing, of convincing myself that I'm not good enough to have that conversation or to apply for that job. And I can talk myself out of a job like nobody's business. But really, I've hurt nobody but myself in doing that. And I see this all the time from people that are 20 and people that are 40, that they talk themselves down rather than building themselves up. And so don't, don't just put your best foot forward to someone else. Put it forward to yourself. Convince yourself of your own gifts, of your own talents, of your own ambitions, and then speak to others. And maybe it's not feasible. Right? If you're 50 years old and want to become a, you know, and then decide you want to become a physician and you've been an engineer all your life, that might be difficult, but you don't talk yourself out of that path. Okay? Explore the world, explore the opportunities there um, and, and think critically. I'll tell you, for someone who had a linear career that you said, that was, inc- right, Kieran? Was that not incredible? Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad you're saying that. I have a lot of fear in saying that, right? I've not been down that road. Um, so I should, we should put an asterisk next to that advice of this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Not, <laughs> not, not a job coach. <laughs> I wrote this down. Don't negotiate the other side. You know, I, I really feel like there's, there's a reason I ask certain questions, even though sometimes it's like totally off of the questions I might've given. And you couldn't have given better advice, I feel, you know, my personal opinion, Karen shaking her head yes. So I I, thank you for that. Thank you very much. Ham 10 is a leader in IT enterprise solutions and staffing. They are driven to transform their clients' business performances. They do this every day by providing the clients with the best services and products. Products like BizLego, an online community platform, and Colear, a unique learning management system. They also transform the lives of women and children through their associated nonprofits, SheTech, which supports women in and joining the technology field, and Softkin, support organization for kids in need. PAM10, technology for social good. Go to PAM10.com for more information. Let's get into the, the, the incredible work that you do. 
It's about bringing awareness to issues that need to be paid attention to through incredible research that I would, I don't have the capabilities myself. That is not my forte. I don't know, Kieran, is that your forte? Do you love doing research? <laughs> no, I like reading it. I like uh, learning and I like connecting dots, but I, I think Dan and, is an expert for sure. So you're, you're doing all of that and you're, when you're doing your research, and I just want to share this with the listeners, you are, you're not just doing the research and it's going away. The research you're doing, from what I understand, being a novice in this conversation when it comes to this, is that you're taking this and you're bringing that to government agencies and nonprofit organizations so that action can happen. Am I right about what I'm saying here? Yes, I would call myself an applied researcher. So academics, you know, professors, we're judged on how many, largely, on how many peer-reviewed publications um, we produce and are accepted. And peer review how publications are, you know, publications, you know, journals read by other academics, maybe. But that's the metric by which we're judged. Um, I think that is a poor metric for any number of reasons. Um, per, perhaps mostly because it's only read by other academics. Um, and so my, what I see my job as is producing that research and translating that research, not just for the other academics, that may or may not read it, but to people that can take that information and put it into action, that can actually improve people's lives as a result of what we're finding. Can you give us an example so that we can all kind of, you know, really paint a picture for us a little bit about how that's worked on, on one thing that you've worked on? Uh, sure. And so perhaps one of, one of the most recent examples uh, has to do with children that lost a parent or another caregiver to COVID-19. Um, this was a report that we produced um, called Hidden Pain uh, that was produced uh, with the COVID Collaborative, which is a uh, bipartisan policy group based in Washington, DC. Um, and what we found is that as of mid-November, 167,000 children in the United States had lost a parent or another caregiver to COVID-19. Um, and our first publication, I think this is very telling about our intentions and our, and our, our mission, um, was not in a highly esteemed academic journal. It was a report that was geared toward policymakers and spent, you know, a couple pages, a few pages kind of documenting the how many. It's only documenting the uh, racial and ethnic disparities and the concentrations in, um, of, those, of those caregiver losses in certain states. But what we spent a lot of time doing in that report is understanding what are the consequences of caregiver loss for those children and what can we do about it? And we lay out kind of very clear recommendations um, that includes you know, increasing community-based supports, things like mentorship programs and peer support programs. And here are the organizations doing that work and here's how you support them. Or expanding um, economic supports like TANF and SNAP and Medicaid um, to these families that have lost a caregiver because they're coming upon economic hard times. And many of them were experiencing economic hardships even before the pandemic and certainly before uh, losing a parent or, an, or another caregiver. Um, and so what we've been doing is in addition to writing that report, um, we did a lot of kind of mainstream kind of interviews to try to get that word out to the public and to policymakers. And we've been meeting with um, legislators and policymakers on a regular basis since then to, to kind of write, take that 50 page report or 80 page report, whatever long it was and dial it down to kind of two pages. Here's what you need to know and here's what you can do 
either on the economic side or on the clinical side or on the kind of community-based support side to help these children in your community. Um, but that's perhaps you know, the most important part, producing the research. If it stays on my desk or it stays on a dusty bookshelf, does no good. So it's important that we take that information, take those findings, and then work kind of with all of our potential partners to bring those data into action. You know, it was when, when Kieran, you had brought this up, this topic, when I have, when we were talking about you know, mm -hmm. people to bring on the podcast as, as we continue. Mm -hmm. And um, share with me your thoughts behind this and, and what you, you've seen too through, through the work that Dan has done. Well, I, I think, that, you know, the reason why I shared it with you, Jody, when, when Dan released this particular piece of research was that this is something that nobody's talking about enough or, or really at all. It felt like at all. That was your reaction. That was so much of my reaction. And I, I just so appreciated, you know, you being open to having Dan as a guest and, and creating a space to share this incredible research. I mean, the numbers that, you know, Dan just laid out and that are just you know, staggering. And when we think about, you know, I think a lot about systems and systems to support our most vulnerable families, Alice families, families in poverty, you know, those systems are broken pre-pandemic and, you know, pre all the challenges that, you know, come from the numbers and the, the data and the, quite frankly, the, the deaths of COVID that, you know, Dan just laid out, they were already broken. And so now you layer on this, this massive uh, demand for a whole new level of support and engagement and services for, for children. And I just, I just have tremendous worry and fear that you know, we, these children will be lost and, and not really cared for, not really supported. And then we will see the impact of that in our communities. We will see it in, in not only you know, straight up poverty numbers, we'll see it in healthcare indicators, we'll see it in crime indicators, education outcomes. You know, we'll see it across all of the pieces of, 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 of our lives and our communities because our systems, our institutions are not ready or set up or really able to absorb this tremendous devastation that these families are experiencing. And let me add, kind of without a comprehensive response from philanthropy, from nonprofits, from federal, state, and local policymakers, we're going to see the consequences for years to come. Absolutely. Uh, because the consequences of losing a caregiver are short and long term, right? They include, you know, PTSD and, and complicated mm -hmm. grief, um, but they can go on to include things like. Um, you know, lower educational attainment and, um, you know, higher rates of substance use disorder and, and mental health uh, conditions um, and lower employment rates, you know, down the line. And so either we address the needs of these children and their caregivers now, and we have to include their surviving caregivers there because they're also going through their own grief. They're going through their own loss while also trying to, you know, raise, raise children. Um, and they might've lost not only another caregiver, but they might've lost um, an income contributor or the primary or the only income contributor um, in their households. And now they're struggling to raise this child and also struggling to, to pay the rent. Exactly. Um, and exactly. and food on the table. And so we need here, right? If, if there's, I don't want to say, here's what makes this a little bit easier 
is the infrastructure, the systems to ad address these needs and help these children and their families, they already exist. They already exist. Groups like United Way of Northern New Jersey and others that help low-income families already exist, but they don't have the support that they need. They didn't have the support that they needed before the pandemic, and they certainly don't have what they need kind of now, right? We're seeing kind of record labor shortages for nonprofits across the country with this surplus of demand. And that is a terrible combination. Um, and so we need to reinforce and strengthen those resources because that's what's going to do the job. We can't think about creating a whole new grief infrastructure starting from scratch in every community. We already have the expertise, the community-based expertise there, right? We need to give them more resources. We need to kind of teach them a little bit about grief and how to handle kind of those particular problems. Um, and then, you know, once we make those investments, it's going to help not just those children, it's going to help all these children that have vulnerabilities, right? Again, for today, you know, in the short term um, and in the long term as well, right? Think of these as capital investments that will go a long way to improving systems for the long term. So how do we, in your opinion, Dan, how do we do that, right? So you, you said, you know, about funders and, and those who are out there. We have certain things in place. They're, they're, they could be ready to go. If, if we had the workforce, we already have some of the organizations like United Way of Northern New Jersey. And you said what's missing is the resources and the funding. So what we, how do we get more of that? Because we know, right? And we all know that every funder has a certain pillar or pillars that they fund, but some of them don't see this as part of an area that really needs attention. So there are two factors here, uh, right? One is, and you talk about kind of the funders and philanthropies a little bit. Um, funders, philanthropies, and governments alike tend to think of the world in silos. And this is an odd, an odd topic because it doesn't fit into a particular silo. It's in part public health, it's in part kind of child welfare and child development. And so, you know, and, and, it's, and it's new. And large institutions, including funders, tend not to adapt that quickly, generally speaking, right? That's not true for everyone. But we don't, we don't see large bureaucracies and large organizations, including funding organizations, pivoting that quickly to address new problems, okay? So we need to think about how we define um, kind of these challenges and accept that this is a public health problem, and it is a child welfare problem, and it is a social, pro social policy problem, and it is an income problem, um, and it is a social services problem. And all of these funders and all of these kind of stakeholders that think about each of these topics, you know, should be contributing to research and actions to, to address this problem. Um, but there's also just so far a lack of, of will to, to do a lot about it. Um, but that doesn't mean, again, we don't know what, what works. So I'm gonna give another example. So the Department of Veterans Affairs um, through uh, a big push in both resources and innovation reduced homelessness among veterans by 50%. Um, uh, from, I think it was 20, uh, 2010 or 2011 through 2017, veteran homelessness went down by about 50%. Um, and I would expect that that's a bit of an understatement given how uh, veteran homelessness is measured. Um, and we did that through kind of pretty, pretty common sense ways. Um, one is we put more money to, toward addressing the problem. And two, we invested money into solutions that were that were promising and seemed to work, right? Homelessness prevention and rapid rehousing for people that would, you know, soon become homeless or had recently become homeless. 
um, to get them back into community housing as quickly as, the, as we could. Um, and then the HUD VASH program, which is permanent supportive housing for the chronically homeless population. And again, by investing in those resources and through innovation, you know, we reduced veteran homelessness by 50%, um, right? The reason we haven't seen large scale um, reductions in homelessness is that we haven't taken those lessons and applied them more broadly and made that level of investment. Um, just because we're not kind of making those steps doesn't mean we don't know what works. And here too, right? This is not the first time that children have lost caregivers. About 5% of US children lose a parent by the age of 15, okay? We know what works. There's a large body of research about how to help those children to avoid many of those developmental and other concerns, you know, through their, their adolescence, their childhood, and over the course of their life. Um, we just need to make the investments um, and bring everyone together um, to a job to, to help. Well, I hope those who are listening to this hear that and, and, and start to learn about making those changes. And there are several organizations that I know in New Jersey that, that care a lot about this, but there just needs to be more attention paid to it. So I, I want to um, move on to other things that you're doing too. So Kieran, I'm going to, I'm going to let you take it from here on talking about United for Alice. Maybe you can give uh, more of a background about that. And then we, you can, uh, you and Dan can uh, take over from here on talking <laughs> specifically. Sure. Thank you so much, Jody. Um, so I have the pleasure to lead United Way in Northern New Jersey, which is the local United Way that represents five counties in New Jersey, Morris, Sussex, Warren, Somerset, and most of Essex, Montclair, and 11 towns. And our United Way uh, over 10 years ago created what's called United for Alice, which is a data research and analytics project that was born you know, very slowly, one by one, piece by piece, in an attempt to really understand the needs of the community in a much deeper way. Really knowing that there were a lot of folks certainly um, living in poverty, but a lot of folks just above the poverty level who were also working and struggling, and yet often not eligible for any types of services, certainly none of the things that Dan just outlined. And so the ALICE project was born. The ALICE project stand, ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. It represents nearly 40% of households in New Jersey, as well as across the country, who live below what we call the ALICE survival budget, which is our primary source of data. It's an alternative to the federal poverty level, which just for accuracy is about $28,000 for a family of four, no matter where you live in this country. The ALICE data provides an alternative to that and is really um, a drill down and an estimate of what it takes to live and work in a modern economy in a very specific geography down to the municipality. So in New Jersey for an average survival budget for a family of four is about $78,000. So quite different than the $28,000 number, but it really takes into account what we know and what we all experience um, day to day and, and taking care of our families and trying to earn a salary and, and save and do what we need to do to take care of our families. So the Alice Project um, really born, grew up that way and, and extend, extended outside of New Jersey and now includes um, 25 partner organizations, states across the country, over a thousand United Ways, hundreds of government, um, public officials, foundations, businesses, are all involved in the, the national ALICE movement. 
Um, Dan has been with us for over five years um, and has been a, a critical, critical member of the team, really has such deep expertise, obviously, in poverty and systems and social policy and, and leans in uh, in so many different ways um, on the team. I've had the fortune to, to get to chat with him and get angry and frustrated and crazy about things that, that we worry about and that we care so deeply about. So I'm, I'm just so glad that he's here. And I think, Dan, you know, I'd love for you to share kind of what, you know, brought what keeps you in the, the research project. You know, you, you started and when you were, you know, in the midst of your, your graduate work and your Ph.D. And you've chosen to stay on the team now that you are a, a full professor and would love to just hear, you know, why why you connect the dots and why being part of um, an, an advocate and a researcher for Alice is so important to you. Uh, I think this project is the epitome of what I love to do, right? This is not research for the sake of research. It is not research for the, sake, for the sake of lengthening my CV. The goal of this project, right, your mission, the mission of everyone on our team is to kind of help and improve the lives of everyone below that Alice, uh, that Alice threshold, that household survival budget. Um, and this gives us a way to do it and a way to do it at scale. Right? So we're doing kind of high level research. We're doing original data analysis um, that touches on every single social policy problem that we can think of. Because how much you earn affects where you live, um, you know, what kind of jobs you're gonna have access to, um, what kind of food you're going to be able to afford, you know, what kind of healthcare you're going to be able to receive. Um, and it epitomizes all of my work. Um, and gives me a way to, to, to have this impact across 25 states. And we're speaking with kind of federal policymakers as well, right? Our impact is not confined to any particular geography. Um, we work nationally um, to, you know, kind of improve the lot for low income uh, and no income households. Um, and that's, that's the game, right? If, if yeah, I, I don't know, right? We talked about a little bit before about kind of clarity and understanding, right? I finally, I'm finally in a place, right? At 38 years old, I'm finally in a place where I understand kind of what I want to do. And I'm, I've come to understand, I don't want to just kind of write papers that nobody reads, right? That's not, that's not fun. Um, I don't kind of get my, get my, my joy from seeing my name in publication, right? It's about producing things that have impact and especially for impact for those people, those groups that don't really have a voice on their own. They don't have fierce advocates. Um, and United for Alice is a fierce advocate for them, right? Not that we're kind of banging the doors down, but we're publishing the research. We're producing the analysis that helps everybody kind of at the advocacy level kind of understand what to push for. Um, and, and we see the impact on a regular basis. We hear from policymakers from across the country um, that are using our work to inform uh, their findings. And so one example is a few years ago, I think this was 2017, 2018, somewhere in that ballpark, um, a, a Hawaiian state representative named Chris, Chris Lee um, introduced a, a legislation, I think this was a, a, res, a state level resolution um, that was thinking about kind of low income households and uh, a universal basic income, which was kind of becoming a big topic at, at the time. And I believe they specifically refer to Alice. And I had a conversation with him afterwards. And it was our work that pushed him in that direction. And whether a UBI or another kind of path is the right direction is kind of more of a kind of a topic 
for, for them to, to figure out. But the fact that they're using our research to push opportunities and push policies to improve the lives of, of those Alice and poverty households, um, that's important and that's what we're looking to do. Um, and there's, again, there's so much synergy between the Alice work and all of my work, right? And I come from a housing and homelessness background, right? Before I came to Penn, um, I uh, was at New York City's Department of Homeless Services conducting research and evaluation on topics to, you know, keep on programs to keep people in their existing housing and help move people out of shelter and into housing. Um, and what we never fully understand, we talked about silos earlier, what we never really talked about are how people slide from kind of being middle class or middle class into a shelter system. And it is so much less rare than we like to believe. Um, and so what I can do through the United for Alice project is kind of break those silos down and look big picture. And I can draw a very clear line how someone who is middle, who is kind of solidly middle class um, can, you know, lose their job or they lose a caregiver as is the case kind of so predominantly right now. Um, and they lose an income earner and, you know, suddenly they're, they're down to one income and they're Alice and they're struggling to get by but then the car breaks down or the kid gets sick and they can't get to work and they lose their job and then they're evicted and then they move in with somebody, you know, a sister or a family member of some kind. Um, but that only lasts so long and they bounce around a little bit before they end up, bam, in the shelter system, which is where I would have had my microscope focused a few years ago. Um, being able to see the big picture allows us as a nonprofit, allows policymakers in general, the opportunity to kind of intervene, kind of upstream um, at, a, at a meaningful scale. You know, the, the, you have, you have just listening to you, right? It's, I, I don't get to interview a lot of researchers. You know, I, I just don't, and, I, and I'm so glad to have you on, but it's not about just the numbers. You have such a heart in, in, in this, right? That Karen's shaking her head. Yes. There's such a heart in there that every number means something to you. The, I, I, the way I see it looking on the outside, those numbers represent humans. You don't just look at them as if they're just statistics. No, you, you can't. Um, and, and to some degree, there is a time, there is a time to do that, um, right? Everyone, at, when, when I was doing the research on COVID bereaved children, everyone asked me kind of, don't you get depressed every day? And you, you can't, right? I can't think about kind of the individual people in, in that moment because I don't need to be curled up in the fetal position while trying to run analysis. That's not good for anybody. No. Um, but as we think about kind of moving that, um, kind of from kind of data, right? Right, policymaking happens at an aggregate level, right? It is a rough, blunt instrument, policymaking is. Um, and, but it's informed by all of those individual stories. And so as we went to kind of translate those numbers into policy or policy recommendations, right? You, right, you suddenly, right, those numbers become people again. And you start reading about and reading about stories and, and listening to the stories of those individuals you know, combine that with the existing literature and suddenly you, you have this kind of full understanding about the challenges that these households are facing, what are the policy tools um, that, may, that, that may help, and you combine that into those recommendations. I'm sorry, Kieran, I didn't know if you had another question for, for um, Dan, but I had, to, I had to ask that question because I just passionate he is in, in the work that he does. No, no, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you jumped in. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and that's why 
you know, Dan talked about being an applied researcher. And I think that's really at the core is that, yes, there is a time and place for that hardcore analysis, you know, probably in the middle of the night when you're staring at spreadsheets um, and trying to write. But, but there's certainly, you know, I think what makes him really special is that he does really break it down and he does personalize and, you know, it does pull in examples and think about, you know, different families um, and, and really what the impact is on a deeply, you know, very personal level. I think that's what makes you really good at what you do. Well, thank you. I'm not going to take compliments. I'll just say thank you. <laughs> all this good, all this good feelings happening here on uh, today's the day. Change makers, I love it. Support. We've become this incredibly supportive community in change makers too. People that don't know each other, you two know each other, but it's the community is coming together in such great ways too. So, with that, with that being said, Dan, looking at homelessness and all that's happening there. And you talked about other areas who are able to shrink it. What do we do? What can we do better here? What message can you leave with us today that somebody can listen to is how can we make a difference here as just individuals walking around who may, who don't fit that, right? We're in a position to help for those who are in a position to help. How can we help? Don't be, so my broad advice would be, don't be afraid to play your part. And that might mean, don't be afraid to find out what your part could be. And that could be volunteering with an organization, with a nonprofit, or kind of making a donation to a nonprofit, or lobbying your representatives, right? That, that, is, that doesn't take qualification. It doesn't take expertise. Um, all it takes is a phone call, right? There's no, no downside to it, no harm to come from it. But if there's an issue that you care about, even casually, uh, just a few minutes to make a phone call to your, your, to your congressperson, um, to your state representative, um, to get involved on a campaign for a candidate that's going to advocate for and push for the kinds of policies that you think are going to make a difference, don't be afraid to get involved. It will be worth it because you'd rather be, you'd rather lose a little bit of that time to make that contribution rather than sitting on your couch after election day or after the, the vote on a, on a bill has already passed and it went, the, it went against the way that you wanted it to go. And then you're saying, they're going, ah, I wish I had done something, right? Don't be afraid to take that action. Great point. So Kieran, before I get, cause we're, I can't believe we, this went so quickly. Really. I just looking at the clock. I'm like, it's now, before I ask Dan the last question, I wanted to know, is there anything, any, anything else that you wanted to ask Dan before we go? I guess I, I would love to hear, you know, what do you say to your students who are, you know, kind of eager beavers, full of optimism, you know, haven't really uh, cut their teeth yet in, in social service work and nonprofit work or research, you know, so what do you say to them to keep them motivated? I'm thinking so much about this next generation of leaders for our field, given that I'm kind of inching towards the, the other end of the age spectrum. I'm not done yet, but you know, I see, I see it coming. Um, so what do you say to that, your students, kind of the, the up and coming generation of, of leaders and practitioners who are really, you know, need to continue to do this work and move things forward? I'd love to hear kind of how you keep them. How, how I keep them kind of motivated and, and going. Um, yeah. So yeah. in many ways, it's many of the things that I've said to kind of the, the, the broad audience that we've, that we've been speaking to um, through this conversation. Don't be afraid, don't, don't be afraid to play your, pay to, don't be afraid to play your part. 
Um, And don't be afraid to find out what your part is. Speak with everyone that you can get a hold of, right? Mm -hmm. There are students in their early 20s at this point. I didn't know what I was going to be doing when I was in my early 20s. Um, And take those opportunities. Don't sell yourself short. Um, And, and, you know, they're master's level students at at the University of Pennsylvania, this acclaimed and, and highly esteemed institution. They can do so much with their careers and so many are kind of just afraid um, to, to take some of those first steps. They don't have the confidence to go out into the world and to introduce, them, in, to introduce themselves to everyone that, that might be willing to meet with them or even meet with their teachers. So this, what I tell them is let's have the conversation. You don't know what you wanna do. I've been down this path before. I've literally I've been in, the, in those seats, literally been in those seats, right? I can, I, might be able to kind of guide you toward a job. I might be able to guide you toward a career. I might be able to guide you to the right person that can help you, but don't be afraid. I think the other thing that we so often do um, in undergraduate, even graduate education is we sugarcoat the realities um, of the policy and practice worlds. And they are rough. And I think we need to be honest with that with our students, that they come out of, I have their education, having just paid a bunch of money with this kind of quixotic kind of idea of how the world is going to work and how you know large bureaucracies make change. And I remember coming out of the Kennedy School um, and then getting to New York to New York City's Department of Homeless Service and thinking, wow, I'm not prepared for this at all. Um, because you know, everything's a two-page policy memo or a, you know, a five-page paper. The world doesn't work in five page papers and the world barely barely works in two page memos, um, right? Policy making is sometimes, but not always an intentional process. Sometimes it is just a commissioner has an idea and that's what you're going with. And then you work until two o'clock in the morning to put that in, into action. Um, and so part of what we need to do is take the idealism of the, and, and the skills of these students and kind of teach them, here's what the world is going to be like. Here's how you keep your ambition and can, can survive and thrive in that environment that might not be what, exa- what exactly you want it to be, but will still allow you um, to make the change that you're hoping to see. That's a good, good message. Good message. We all need it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dan, like I feel like I could talk to you for hours because you have so many, so many great uh, things to say and so much great insight. And the work is so much. I've run out of material. This is this is the extent of it. <laughs> That's it. It's a, it's all done. It's all. We have one more question, so don't go anywhere just yet. <laughs> He's so being fresh, Jody. He's being fresh. <laughs> it's all ask good. my ask my kids how much wisdom I have. It ends pretty soon. Oh, but all kids have to say that about all their parents. That's that's just kind of going, the going thing. Right. So all right. I'm, I'm ready for the last question. I'm ready. You ready? All right. What is the footprint you are creating right now that you want to leave behind? I, I think my footprint is what my parents taught me that I should be doing, which is of taking this limited opportunity that I have to improve conditions and opportunities for groups of people that do not have voice, do not have opportunities kind of on the, oftentimes on their own 
uh, to make that to make that difference. That we need to understand um, that um, systematic racism, structural discrimination exists, and I'm in a position where I can kind of work to dismantle some of that and improve life for people. You know, through through my, right through my policy work, right? So indirectly, um, right, help to kind of break down some of that structural discrimination the structural disadvantages and help to move people through and break down those walls generally. Um, that is what I hope my footprint will be, um, that I was able to kind of make a difference um, for, you know, for, for families across the country. That really is. And that's a calling. It, to me, when I hear it, it, it sounds like a calling, right, Kieran? Absolutely. So Kieran, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the tables because you answered that you answered a different question last year. So since you did, I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, every year I change the question as the last. So now we're gonna have to ask you that same question since you're on too as a co-host. So what is the footprint you're creating now that you want to leave? Hmm. That's that's a good one. Um, I, I didn't think to to prepare. No, that was, this was this is a totally off. This the is spontaneous. You know, I, as I said a few minutes ago, I'm thinking a lot about and journaling a lot about leadership and sort of my role as a leader and where I'm at and the up and coming generation of leaders in this work. So I, I think that I, I want to I, I want to have some impact around, you know, kind of a cohort and a cadre of up and coming leaders and ensure values around a lot of what Dan was talking about was, you know, don't be afraid to play your part. And I've been thinking a lot about be bold, you know, be strategic, be thoughtful, but be intentionally bold. And so I, I think that's what I would say, Jody, to that question right now. Like, you know, my, my, when I think about literally, you know, standing up and what's underneath my feet, I'd want there to be words that capture boldness, intentionality, and purpose, and really ensuring that this next generation of leaders that are, are coming right very quickly, um, you know, feel that and embolden that every day. Well, for off the cuff, that was really good, Kieran, right? Right, Dan? I mean, that. I, I'm impressed. I wish I said that. <laughs> it was very bold of me to ask you that question out of nowhere. Look at that. Yeah, Jody, you're, you're bold. You're checking that box, my friend. You're good. <laughs> I'm taking your lead on this. You said that, you know, you're teaching. You didn't need me. You didn't need me. <laughs> uh, Kieran, thank you. Thank you for introducing me to Dan and being here with us today. So appreciate it. Dan, thank you for all the incredible work you're doing and making a difference in the world and being a change maker. That's oh, thank you so much for having me and this, this wonderful conversation. I enjoyed speaking with, with both of you um, and look forward to, uh, you know, continuing the conversation down the line. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Well, and we'll definitely need more updates from you as, as you do more research and things come up. And as you continue to grow all of these wonderful inspirational words, you just have to come on and share them with us. So you always have an invitation. Thank you. Welcome. So I'm going to say what I say at the end of every single podcast. Today is the day you cannot go back to yesterday and you do not yet own tomorrow. So what step, small or large, are you going to take today to get yourself closer to your goals? Thank you again to Dan Treglia and Kieran Honda Godioso for being part of this podcast this week. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jody. You. Take care. Thank Bye, Dan. Thanks so much.